Hello, and welcome back to Lost in Citations, our regular podcast where we speak to the producers of interesting content and see if we can learn a little bit more about their background. Joining us today is Dr. Paul Seveny, who is an associate professor at Ritzmakan Asia Pacific University. Very nice to speak to you today, Paul. Nice to be here. Thanks, Chris. Well, the last time that we spoke with you was a kind of a, a group interview with your colleagues, Kent Jones and Abby Demi Bancole. And I'm very happy to welcome you back to speak about uh, your paper, Revising Role-Based Literature Circles for EFL Classrooms. So there's a lot kind of going on uh, in that title. And I'd like to give you the opportunity to kind of introduce what what we're talking about. I mean, uh, some of our listeners may be aware of uh, reading circles, uh, oftentimes when uh, a group of EFL students is assigned a, a graded reader, and they uh, will share their experiences. And so they have this kind of shared content to produce discussion um, level activities. But could you give us some background to the difference between these two types of um, circle? Yeah, maybe I'll go back even one more step, if that's okay. Sure. Uh, because I think, first of all, in general, we maybe people are more familiar with book clubs. So depending on, on who's listening, and, you know, maybe in your family, you've, uh, or your or with your friends, you, they, you invite people over to your house, and discuss, you know, a book that you read this month. And certainly for me, for example, in, during the pandemic, um, my bubble consisted of my daughter and my wife and I at home. And so, you know, reading the Hunger Games and talking about it together was kind of one of the ways that we bonded during the pandemic, which uh, was sort of a silver lining, I suppose, to the lockdown. Um, but that book club idea is uh, book clubs tend to be in people's private homes, right? And and I think the term literature circles has tended to be more used when we take that idea of a book club and we put it into a school setting. And so that we'll, if I think we could start with that. And then on a second level, um, when you're in a school setting and you're dealing with literature circles, well, first of all, there's two big con, there's, there's, there's native speakers getting together. And, and I think a lot of listeners who are primary school teachers in you know, native speaking contexts or L1 contexts, um, are used to using literature circles as a as a literacy development tool, um, in, especially in uh, primary and secondary school usually. Um, but then we can also talk about second language literature circles and second language literature circles then are more the domain of uh, second language acquisition, um, but it also intersects with the field of stylistics and the, the study of the rigorous study of texts, uh, especially literary texts and their interpretation. And that can happen, second language literature circles can happen in a, a several different contexts, but let's say at schools, for example, I think the most common two contexts are the ESL context and the EFL context. And the English as a second language context is like, where English is the uh, official language of the environment and the country, right? And um, we have students who are uh, immigrating or maybe visiting and they're learning that language as their second language. And so those students are exposed to 
English all around uh, outside of class and outside of school, they they have a lot of input, right? And in the in their target language. And I think that's a different context than the EFL context. And we can talk about that in more detail, but uh, the EFL context is more where English is not the official language of a culture and community, but students are studying English in that community. And so uh, like in rural Japan, for example, where, uh, where I am, and we have students who pretty much, you know, probably use English, use English in school uh, in their classroom, but maybe they don't have so many opportunities to use it outside of class um, when they're at home with their families, for example. Let's give a little bit of a context to APU, um, as a, just mm -hmm. to uh, let people know. I, I used to work uh, with Paul. I used to work at APU um, before I moved uh, to where I am now. Would you say that on campus? there is something closer to an ESL um, environment than an EFL environment when compared to other universities in Japan. Yeah, and so I, I'm glad you brought that up because I think we need to talk about uh, the new, newer development of English medium of instruction schools. And so uh, Ritsumeikan Asia Pacific University is an example of a dual language school where students can study for their degree in either English or Japanese, and they can do the same major tracks, right? And so certainly that creates more like an ESL context on campus, although I would say it's still slightly different. So there's certainly the opportunity of easily retreating to your island of your own uh, L, same language speakers and not necessarily using um, English outside of class. But to go more in detail, for example, our students study for two years, a domestic student who finishes high school in Japan and who's going to study English at APU is going to spend two years roughly in just English classes with other domestic students. So they're probably not going to be mixed uh, with international students so much as you might think in an English uh, medium instruction school. Yeah, it, it was my experience at uh, APU that uh, while the school worked very hard, and, not, and again, I've, I've not worked there for almost 10 years now, that uh, the university worked very hard to try and bring people together, uh, not only in the classrooms and in, uh, you know, other situations, but also in club activities and, you know, promoting, you know, student-led activities that would promote uh, this kind of interaction. But I, I understand it is very difficult to do. Yeah, it does happen. And I, and I do say that um, exchange classes are one of the things that really makes uh, for a distinctive environment at APU and, and other schools. Maybe not that many schools have that opportunity, so I don't necessarily want to um, focus on that as much as the fact that we do have classes that are like many other EFL classes in Asia, for example, where uh, you're in very tightly knit cohorts proficiency-wise because we have a placement test that places you based on your proficiency, and so um, uh, our domestic students tend to be at a lower level than our international students who come in um, who necessarily need to go right into taking content courses in English so they can study Japanese. Sorry, that gets complicated. But in, in, in your paper, and to, to, to go to the paper uh, content specifically, you do note that literature circles are generally more commonly used in ESL. Uh, 
So oh. what, what in your previous work kind of suggested that this would be an appropriate uh, kind of teaching strategy for your current working context? Uh, that's a good question. And I think that goes way back before, before us, I think. I want to go back to um, around 1930, actually. Uh, and if we go back to around 1930, you have a couple interesting things happening. Um, first of all, um, okay, I, I don't really want to talk about oil money, but we must. Okay, so there was this guy named Edward Harkness, who was his family became ultra wealthy through the Standard Oil Company. And I don't know all the details of that. But in the late 1920s, this guy, Edward Harkness, decided to give almost $6 million to Phillips Exeter um, School. In which, I, which I believe uh, $6 million in 2022 money is about <laughs> I $100 trillion. I don't know. It's <laughs> uh, so anyway, uh, Edward Harkness in 1930 gave... Uh, a private school, um, almost $6 million to create a new, better way of teaching. And at the time, I think they were frustrated. The teachers were frustrated with the idea that teacher fronted classes were not being effective for learning. And so he said, okay, I'm going to give you all this money and the maximum class size is going to be 12. And in every subject, the students are going to have to come to class and they're going to have to discuss this. This is the method that they came up with at the school, not this oil guy, but the teachers. And so that method then got his name on it because he's the one who gave all the money. Okay, so it's, there's this teaching method called the Harkness method that is very fairly prevalent in, in independent schools in the United States. And what's interesting to me about that is that that's basically literature circles, but almost in a more broader sense of discussion circles, because whether you're talking about a literature of math or the literature of science or the literature of, you know, Hemingway, right, then students need to come to class having taken notes and being prepared to talk about that content. And that was primarily native speakers, right? But actually, in the United States, you have an extremely diverse community. So there were already second language students who were being put into these mainstream classes, right, uh, in private schools who are less proficient than those around them. And so we can say that they were, I, I call these almost, so this was my experience in, in uh, when I was teaching at a private high school in the United States. And when I was teaching at that private high school in the United States, uh, they wanted to become an international baccalaureate school. And one of the ways they decided to make that bridge to becoming an international baccalaureate school was to implement the Harkness method so that all of the teachers and all of the students were used to a student-centered format. Now, I'll just ask all those teachers out there, think about that. Imagine if your university said, oh, we're gonna give up the lecture from the pulpit kind of teaching from the front, and we're gonna do active learning with small groups. With, and, and limit class sizes to 12. It would be pr pretty nice situation for being an uh, EFL teacher, I think, in that yeah, regard. My, my, uh, my colleague, Jonathan, always calls this the, the, the sage on the stage model. Right. So the person who's going to mm -hmm. be teacher from, and it, and it has been, as you say, even despite innovations of nearly 100 years ago, it maintains its prevalence, particularly when it comes to trying to learn, you know, large 
concepts that don't require discussion that you want to make sure that everyone in the class is up to speed on what is the right. state of the art, uh, whether it's science or math or law or economics, doesn't matter. You, it, it, it still remains the prevalent form of methodological instruction. But when it comes to things like uh, language learning, as you say, and in appealing to our um, listener base, we do know that this is not something that's going to be uh, very helpful if you're trying to learn a language when you're having to learn reading, listening, writing, and most importantly, perhaps uh, speaking confidence. So yeah. I'd like to ask you on, on a slight aside, um, and also to help out our non-Japanese listeners, you note in your background, uh, the idea of stakeholders, and you've already mentioned several of them, the professors, the administration, the students, the, uh, the parents of the students who are actually, you know, you know, paying for these courses. Um, do you think that there is any difference between in, in the Japanese context or in your university's context, or how it would be in, I mean, you've, you've mentioned before about your experience in North America. Is there a difference in the power dynamic between these different stakeholders and, and what they might be expecting from their courses? I mean, I, I definitely think that's true from a cultural perspective. So I suppose you could say one of the macro forces on at that high level is culture. And I would say that, you know, when you look at the United States, who, for example, has had a lot of sort of Vygotskyan influence from the early 1900s um, uh, with sociocultural theory. Uh, and, and, and note that his book came out in like 1934 or something, right? But then this movement in independent schools was starting also in the 30s. So I don't know if they were reading the Russian version because Vygotsky's book came out in English in 1978. So uh, we've been lagging behind uh, Russia, it seems like on that one. Um, but the point and that's that, not a great place to be when it comes to uh, you know setting public policy, right? So, but this uh, but this idea of of uh, discussion based learning and collaboration uh, has certainly had deeper roots in the United States than in Japan, and I, I think we're all really familiar with that the idea that Japanese students are you know, they, they're the cup that's being filled up and the teacher is the master and the expert, which is sort of um, uh, what Parker Palmer called the objectivist model of truth, you know, that the teacher is the expert and that the students are surrounded by these baffles that are like obstructing them from, you know, there's this fog that's stopping them from knowing the subject. And so the teacher is the sage on the stage who elucidates it, right? And I think that that is much stronger in Japan than it is uh, in other countries, especially Europe and the United States. So I'd say that factor is, is a big one. Um, but I, I do want to say that uh, for EFL classrooms, you know, the thing that we have going for it with role-based literature circles for language learning is that uh, most, most language programs, especially at universities in Japan, have extremely good placement tests and they place students into tightly banded cohorts. So they might all be um, Sefer, sorry, it's a common European framework of reference is a leveling system. And so like Sefer A plus or Sefer B um, one minus or something like that. And so we know that all those students have a very similar um, level. And so when we're creating a pedagogy like talking about books, like in extensive reading, so the reading circle really 
you know, EFL literature circles are really just one specific type of reading circle. So getting back to the, the meat of what we're talking about here, um, reading, for me, the typical reading circle was, um, yeah, first of all, uh, go and look at these, some different reading sources and pick one out that you think your group mates could, would like. And bring them back. And it, it's sort of a different book discussion first, you know what I mean? They, we introduce a bunch of different possible books, and then one of them says, okay, we like that one. And then that person becomes the leader. So you do have roles in reading circles, actually. Usually one person uh, uh, says, okay, well, this is the story that I want to introduce to the group, and we're all going to read that. And next week, we're going to have a discussion. And that student who's the leader usually has to make up some questions check them with the teacher. And then and that's kind of how I used to do reading circles in the uh, 1990s and 2000s. But um, in 2002, there were a few things that happened uh, in, those, in those years. And that's that, um, first of all, Harvey Daniels came out with this book, which is a major study of literature circles in Chicago schools. And, uh, and that was very influential. And he came out with all these role sheets, like the discussion leader and the word master and the summarizer and the culture, you know, the, um, uh, what else did he have? The passage person type of role or connector person. Well, and then, well, I'd, I'd, like, I'd like to get into those um, roles. Yeah. Uh, I mean, just to uh, give a quote from uh, Harvey Daniels from your paper, the very first thing that you uh, mm. say in the introduction is literature circles are small peer-led discussion groups whose members have chosen to read the same story, poem, article, or book. So it it can scale. So it could be as could be as small as a a stanza of a poem, and it could scale to the level of a, um, a book, or even perhaps even a series of books. I mean, you've mentioned that uh, right. in in lockdown you shared a, a book series with right. your, your uh, was that the hunger games was it yeah so you can certainly chunking is another technique with literature right. circles where you know you talk about one or two chapters at a time uh, at one meeting and then you know the next time you meet you do another chapter or two or something like that that's i call that the chunking technique well i've, I've brought up on the podcast before that i someone who reads the Bible every day. And I'm part of a, a kind of an email chain of people who when we come across a passage, a verse that we don't quite understand, we, we send around to each other uh, what we think it means and, and try to get their interpretations of it and learn a little bit more uh, about the book that way. When it comes to roles, I'm, I'm very interested in uh, the, the way that the roles were assigned in your study. So basically a couple of joined uh, questions. Did the students decide uh, the particular roles themselves? And then during the process of your research, did students approach you wanting to change their roles, um, feeling that they would be more appropriately set uh, in a different part of the group? Right. Well, so no, I, I started off with, um, so after 2002, when Harvey Daniels' book came out, uh, two years later, a guy named Mark Furr um, wrote an article, and he sort of took the idea of these role-based literature circles, and he said, hey, here's a system that could work really well in uh, foreign language context, and these are the roles he suggested. And then that became a series of books uh, called the Oxford Bookworms uh, Reading Group uh, series, and there were chosen uh, short stories that were graded at different levels. And so we piloted that at, lower, at various levels in our system, in our school. 
And what we determined is that um, we, we thought it could work well with uh, upper intermediate students, um, but we needed to really under, we needed better information. And so my book chapter is more about like, how can EFL literature circles work better at the upper intermediate level? Because almost all the studies that are out there of literature circles are with advanced students that are Sefer B2 level. And so they really already have very, very good conversational maintenance skills and so forth. And so then the question is, well, how far down in levels can you go before literature circle idea breaks down completely, right? Like, when are they not ready to do that? And so I think the answer that we found at our school is that we can certainly make them work well at the Sefer B1 level or the uh, when you have the right level of story and you have it lined up with your curriculum well. And so a lot of my chapters in the nuts and bolts of, of how to manage that, which gets, um, so it's quite detailed in that regard. Um, so the, the, the roles that we, I use were very similar to, we basically use, uh, put a, we kind of put a couple of roles together that Mark Furr had. And so for example, we had the uh, experience connectors and that put together like personal experience and cultural comparison. We had uh, the summarizer, the word master and passage person and discussion leaders. I believe all sort of started with Harvey Daniels, but um, uh, Mark Furr recommended using those. And then I came up with a new role called the devil's advocate, which I, I thought um, using the Pearson general uh, global scale of English disagreement kind of comes at the top of the B1 upper intermediate level. And so being able to disagree and agree, uh, I thought might be interesting to drive um, the discussion if we gave them a role that being a devil's advocate is definitely probably a lower advanced tool, but they could understand the, the idea and it did drive a lot more disagreement in the topics, especially talking about themes because there's always put multiple potential themes in the story. And then on the other end, uh, because there's a, an ongoing concern about free writers in literature circles and uh, activities, uh, I actually assigned one student each uh, week to not read the story, and they were called an unprepared contributor, and they had to practice back channeling and asking clarification questions. Uh, and so that was an interesting, that was a research project. It's a rather dysfunctional role to give someone, but uh, as part of research, it's fairly interesting in that the unprepared contributors only spoke half as many words as everyone else in the discussion so so you, you basically assigned two roles within the group that were inherently disruptive well to, uh, well because if you're thinking about a, a literature mm -hmm. um so-called being a, a kind of a linear process where one part where everyone's read everything and so they they're moving forward and they're kind of like discussing it in that way you've got two people in the group who are one of whom is constantly or is assigned to be constantly questioning the um, assumptions and conclusions of the other members of the group and then someone else who's always saying wait what do you mean like what 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 happened there yeah a little bit but the thing is is it, um if you look at my chapter there's also a the the uh, the idea that a, a role-based literature circle just takes this sort of um initiation response and follow-up 
uh, format and then maps it from the teach the classroom level down to this group level. And so you have these transactions that happen one after another. And so that each of the devil's advocate, at least, is sort of was told to wait to the end until they mm. come to the highest level of understanding. So that was part of their instructions. Um, mm. But it was to definitely their instructions were to um, what I said was I taught them about um, Bell's arc of interpretation and the idea this um, model shows that there's different levels of interpretation and you start off with estrangement and so I was plunging the unprepared contributor into an estrangement and not being familiar with the text at all. Part of the reason I wanted to do that was to um, also create a, a genuine information gap. Mm. So the idea I was just interested in, well, what if the students know that another person hasn't read the story, would they be more apt to describe things more elaborately because, because they know there's someone there who hasn't read it. It gives them an uh, authentic reason to share a summary of the story. So that was my logic with that. Um, have, you, yeah. have you thought about the possibility of maybe like a, like a matched reader? So where the, uh, the, the one person in the group has read a book that has either a different perspective or a, a, like a, a perspective that's going similar to what the group read so that they are able to contribute either a genuine alternate view or well I read a book that talked about this but in a different way so kind of giving them the kind of like a, a concurrent commentator uh, so with with Sefer B2 plus students, with advanced students, I've developed a new uh, kind of mock trial sort of role-based system. And so what's fun about that is one person will know that they're going to be the, um, the oh, sorry, I use uh, crime literature. So uh, one person knows that they're going to be the defense attorney, and another one knows that they're the prosecutor, and another one knows that they're going to be the judge. And so then, then they have to read a story looking for evidence that shows that they can use um, to, uh, to interview witnesses. So the other roles are witnesses, right? Um, and the defendant. And so, uh, so then that way they can have an experience of, of reading with a different lens that's in a real situation, but that works more at the higher levels. Um, so yeah, there's different ways. There's a lot of ways to do that. And the other reason, the other thing with that is, that's quite interesting is then if there's one person who's very high level but they didn't read the story, that actually makes them a good judge. So if they, if if you have one person who didn't read and they're the judge and they're quite a high level, then what that does is it takes them out of play, to let other students actually have more of an opportunity to practice their language skills. That uh, that's really funny. That that brings back um, the trauma of being in law school and having to go through a moot where you I mean this is something that you'd have to spend two three weeks in the in the library preparing for and everyone would have certain roles and the yeah. judge would be there and the trauma comes when the judge is trying to help you as as an either an advocate or a defendant yeah. and saying like well don't you think that and then you realize oh I didn't read that case Oh, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't prepare well enough. So having a, a judge who, who doesn't know the story uh, and is just there as a kind of an independent arbiter of the discussion that's going on, I think is a, is a, is a good way to go forward. Um, so 
again, to, to go back to the actual contents of the paper, could you give us some uh, a summary of the findings and the things, perhaps recommendations for uh, mm -hmm. teachers who would like to introduce this into their classrooms? Well, sure. I think, first of all, uh, there's been several studies that have come out recently, one that's shown that uh, reading circles can definitely help IELTS scores and pre and post uh, tests. And so certainly discussing more like scientific or uh, other kinds of literature, um, academic literature and textbook type articles uh, can certainly help build scores, especially B2 level. Um, that evidence is certainly there. And uh, is, is that in the, not to interrupt you, but uh, is that in the area of confidence? that they have uh, no that was actually in the area of proficiency by proficiency I, okay yeah that was shoe i believe uh that was in elt journal um in, last year i think um and so that's interesting what i was looking at was self-efficacy for discussion which was a scale uh that that looks at your confidence in uh in talking about especially literary fiction so um, so that scale, uh, that scale I used as a pre-semester um, survey and a post-semester survey, and then I measured the gains. And uh, what I found was that the uh, what I found was a very large effect size with uh, with that pre and post. Um, self-efficacy for discussion scale. And what I, the reason I wanted to use that is that if you, you know, create can-do statements, which tends to be a pretty common way of, of grading a syllabus and figuring out your objectives for a course, then if we can start to make can-do statements and put them together into a scale, then I, so I had a lot of those that I pulled from different places and then I did a um, factor, exploratory factor analysis. And then I found that I had seven statements that worked together to create this self-efficacy for discussion scale. And wow, I was so surprised that at the end of the semester when I calculated the, the change in the means, that it was it was a really really big uh, effect size, and so what that said to me was, and 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 not only that, but I was really concerned that it was going to be that there was going to be a sort of leniency and severity of um, self judgment sort of problems. So I did a two tailed um, t test instead of one tailed, and uh, even with um, eight, 19 students in the class, it still came out um, with a very significant p-value very uh, and uh, high effect size and high power. So uh, I thought that well, was- on, on that, on that point, I mean, it, it, a semester is, is quite a short amount of time for a large effect size to be yeah. noticed. Yeah. Um, how uh, significant do you think it was that the students before they started the semester had no idea what the task was going to be, but once they got into the task, realized I literally can do this and I have been able to do this, but no one has tried this with me or my students before. Yeah, at this stage, I would like to say that this was not, I didn't have a control group. And so there wasn't, a, um, uh, because this was all new. So so the thing that we can do now is you could do a, a, a a real study with a control group. And we know that, I know from my experience now that even you know if you had two groups, 20 students and 20 students, you probably do a pretty good study. So there you go. I hope you cite me if you use this information. 
<laughs> and uh, and so so uh, yeah, the students in our particular group that that is in this chapter were upper intermediate students, and they were also getting some lessons on uh, discussion exponents that were going to help them build their discussion skills. And they had a speaking test at the end of the semester that was a discussion speaking test. So so the practice that I was providing them. I think felt very legitimate to them and that it was really giving them a chance to prepare for the speaking test in an in a meaningful way and uh, a lot of what they were most most all their turns and and their sharing was about their personal connections with the story um you know have you ever been jealous um what what's one of your experiences of being jealous in high school or whatever and then they would be talking about and getting to know each other which you know uh building class communities are really important part of what we do and so uh, i was really glad to to see that there was this large effect size for self-efficacy. And, and I want to say something more about that because in Japan, students, because of the Japanese cultural context, you know, they have, uh, according to some of those UN PISA studies, like Japanese students in general have a very high fear of failure. So they're really good at taking tests because they're really afraid of not having the test scores to get somewhere. And uh, what my study does is it also tracks the students motivation levels and a lot of what's very interesting is for example uh, this one student in this study uh, in the uh, focus group that i focused in on she had the highest proficiency uh, scores on toefl in her group and yet she was so lacking in confidence in her her sense of self-efficacy was so low at the beginning of the semester. And yet, because she was high proficiency, she was actually able to make some really good uh, contributions um, and interpretations, as even at the figurative level of these stories and share that with her classmates and was certainly able to express her ethical views about um, even, for example, um, drug company corruption, which was part of one story. and. And I thought, well, and she had a huge gain in her self-efficacy for discussion. And so what I find that's quite interesting about literature circles is that you have a really interesting playing field in that some students who don't do well on tests, but then they have so much confidence to put themselves out there and to share their contributions and personal experiences related to a story that they're gaining a lot of self-efficacy, but then so are those students who are good at tests, but actually not good at speaking. Um, so I, I think that's a, a wonderful finding from, from this study. Well, the paper we've been speaking about is revising role-based literature circles in EFL classrooms. And in fact, it's not really a paper that we're speaking about, it's a chapter in, a book that's coming out being published by Springer called uh, Pedagogical Stylistics in the 21st Century. So certainly we can be uh, clear that um, both Paul and his editors have done their due diligence and have come up uh, with something that is, as you say, very efficacious, not only for teachers, but also for students themselves. Uh, I'm a big believer in Monday morning advice, which is you go to a presentation uh, at the weekend, you go to a conference, which we used to do, and we're going to go start doing that again very soon. I'm very happy about that. But you go to a conference 
and you see something on Saturday afternoon and you think, yes, I'm inspired by this. How could um, someone who is listening to this podcast, who reads the chapter in your book, um, how could they implement something that might be like a, a literature circle light, like something that would be uh, an activity that they could try for, for, I don't know, 10 to 15 minutes on a Monday morning and try and uh, get this started in a, in a kind of small scale way if they're interested in this topic? Yeah, I would say um, from my experience with the unprepared contributor role, what I realized is that students have a lot of anxiety about understanding their part, their group mates speaking. And so we really don't want to put them in that situation. So I created a new role after I finished my dissertation study called the fellow reader role. And what I mean by that is just to make one page worksheet that has the basics of what you want the students to be paying attention to while they read. So it might be the relationships between the characters and the, um, uh, it might be the basic events that happened. And then it might be um, some of the feelings that some characters had that, that they thought were interesting. Uh, and then maybe what they thought the theme of the story might be. Um, and they, they could put that phrase in Japanese, for example, and try to explain it to their group. And I think by creating just that one page sort of agenda-based discussion, um, you're giving them all the same role. And at, at lower levels of students or for teachers, that what that does is it creates a, the one-off opportunity, right? You can do it once, you can try it. If you don't like it, it doesn't, you don't have to do it ever again. And not only that, but you can change the groupings however you want. I think the, the complexity of role-based literature circles is that you have to come up with roles that are gonna repeat and you probably wanna have the same five students meet five times during the semester. Like that's a commitment that if you haven't done literature circles before, you, you're not ready to do for sure. So starting off with the fellow reader role and you can make up whatever um, literary elements that you want the students to focus on. And then they come and, and then maybe the last one is what are your, what's your authentic question about this story, you know, or what are some connections that this story might bring up in your life that you can share. And then they all bring that sheet to the class and that in their groups, you can set up the groups however you want to. So it gives you a lot more flexibility that way. And it's definitely way less complex than role-based literature circles. So I would call that the agenda-based or literature circle. But the idea of a fellow reader role is that um, it prepares them, especially for the answer sequences. Preparation is essential for collaboration. Preparation is essential. And that means that that preparation is going to help them to be able to actually navigate a uh, a an, an exploratory answer sequence, right? When somebody asks a question, well, how am I gonna answer that question? I didn't know what that question was gonna be. So all of a sudden you're in an improvised situation. And so how do you prepare language learners for an improvised situation? Well, preparation is key. So if they all have kind of similar experience with note-taking from the story, and then they ask each other questions, chances are there's gonna be a fair amount of understanding between them and that they're gonna be able to start to do what Vygotsky called language internalization, which is to help each other when they get, you know, they have to do a word search or um, they, they correct each other because they don't understand something. It allows for more of that to happen, which is really what you want going on. 
It's also something that um, uh, when I'm teaching test taking, in specifically IELTS, that you, the first thing you tell them is the thing that you're going to read, the thing that you're going to prepare for next week's lesson. Once we finish the task, you don't need to care. And the that's also true of any exam that you take. So mm. for that hour, you've got three texts, you have 40 questions, you're going to focus and you're going to do as much as the best you can on it. But the moment you leave that room, you don't need to care about the contents of that text ever again. Right. So it's all about extraction of meaning in context. And so, and, and I think that that is something that uh, if you say like a one page preparation, you know, do the best that you can to, to work on it. And then, but don't stress about it if you don't really connect with it or it doesn't really uh, interest you or you don't want to go and research anything else about it. It's fine. Don't worry about it. You know, once, once the activity is done, it's a burner. You can move on to something else. If you are interested, keep going with it. If not, don't stress about it. Right. I, th I think that's really helpful. And I think for IELTS too, you know, like um, one thing that we're working on, I'm working on now is, is that uh, students really need to understand the signal markers in different kinds of organizations of text, right? So like classification organization or um, problem solution or cause and effect. And so why not, why not make a worksheet for each one of those to help them extract those kinds of markers and recognize um, the main idea of these different structures of text, right? So that then when they get to the IELTS and they have hybrid sorts of text, then, then you know, you, you really can, can help them make progress. So there's a lot you can do with these kind of things that I think um, uh, the idea of revising uh, literature circle workspaces and and collaboration methods is important because there's so many different kinds of texts that students have to deal with and there's so many different kinds of heuristics or um, meta meta language um, that you really need to become a proficient uh, user of the language uh, at higher levels and so why not really think through some of those. Um, I think it's a really rich area of, of research that, that there hasn't been a lot done on. So, yeah. Well, to bring our interview uh, to a close, uh, I'd, I'd like to ask where you're going with this next. If you, if you are going somewhere with this next, uh, how are you uh, mentoring your colleagues to perhaps implement some version of this in their courses? Um, is there anything that we should be expecting from you connected to this in the future? Well, right now, um, we're, we're, I, I'm sort of blending uh, reading circles in that that we have, we use, uh, we, we use the EFL literature circles for onboarding to extensive reading with X reading. And, uh, and then at the same in the same day, then those students will, will, will meet and talk about an X reading story that's uh, fiction or narrative, sorry, narrative. And uh, then after that, they'll talk about an academic text um, that they can manage that's on a, in a particular rhetorical uh, organization format. And so that's kind of what we're working on now is sort of understanding those these two different areas, um, academic text versus narrative text. So narrative and non-narrative text. And uh, I think that's a good part. And the other piece that I'm working on that you'll see an article coming out on soon is about mixed proficiency 
literature circles, which really I call literature spirals or something like that, because they're no longer circles when you have unequal power of proficiency. And so what does that do? And um, the question that I've been asking is, for example, why we, we have these roles, ideas like the teacher should not join the literature circle. Why is the rule the, teach, the teacher shall not join the literature circle? So I asked the question, well, can a TA join the literature circle? That's a non-native speaker. When, when is a non-native peer too high? When does sociocognitive theory break down? When does the zone of, where's the end of the zone of proximal development when you have students of different proficiencies? Um, so that's kind of the, the next piece that I'm gonna be putting out as an article. Well, you know how to interest me, given my background in, in teaching assistant research and that type of thing, uh, I will absolutely be inviting you back to, to hear more about it and to grill you on, on your work to make sure that it's up to a certain standard. <laughs> okay. I'm working on it. I mean, I think one of the hard things with this literature circle stuff is making sure that it's simple enough for for teachers and students to really understand their what they're doing and how the language learning actually fits in with it. And so I, your last question is a really important one. And um, there's some other techniques in the chapter as well that that can help with that if you're into this area. Well, it, 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 I, I agree with you. I mean, it is it's so important, particularly when you're dealing with uh, teaching assistants or research assistants in the classroom, you want to explain the task in a way that they don't have to understand the theory behind it in order to understand its efficacy in the classroom so that they can implement it in a way that helps because most of the time when we're trying to explain it at a syllabus level we're talking with people who've gone through advanced degrees and they've spent years reading all the background to it so when you bring up certain things like ZPD and uh, Vygotsky's theories and uh, you know all these kind of like the idea of self-efficacy people they just they understand it and they either agree or disagree but when you're trying to explain it to someone who has to as you say participate in something that might be a 15 20 minute task where they are given a role to mm -hmm. lead these kind of circles you have to be able to explain it in a way that they don't they don't have to know all of the background to it but they're able to do it in a way that helps the students so it's kind of something that i've been trying to do in this this podcast series like we deal with things that i'm i understand very well or john understands very well and there's also topics that we understand nothing about so mm -hmm. we've tried to organize it in a way that um anyone can uh, you know connect with it and learn about it so thank you very much for yeah. sharing your expertise and your time today uh Paul, we've been speaking today with uh, Dr. Paul Seveny from the Ritzmeikan Asia-Pacific University and discussing his chapter from the book Pedagogical Stylistics in the 21st Century. And the chapter is chapter 13 called Revising Role-Based Literature Circles for EFL Classrooms. Thank you very much for your time today, Paul. And I hope that we will have the chance to speak again in the future. Okay, thank you very much, Chris. It's great to be here. If you'd like to contact the show, the best place to find out about us is our website, lostincitations.com. Here you can learn more about the background to this project and how you can get involved. Our hope is to help academics, educators, and online content producers get in contact with each other. Our email address is lostincitations at gmail.com. We also have Facebook and LinkedIn pages.
please rate and comment on the sites you use to download your podcasts. It helps us reach more potential listeners. But probably the most helpful thing you can do is, if you like our content, recommend it to a friend and let them know what we're trying to do. Thank you very much.